If you follow my career or listen to this podcast with any regularity, you might know that one of my good friends in the business is Mirren Fader, the excellent Bleacher Report writer. And Mirren is really great. She's enthusiastic. She's dogged. She's passionate. She's hard-nosed. She's just a really terrific colleague and pal. The other day, however, Mirren told me something that will forever change the trajectory of our friendship, and not for the better. I asked her what she thought about the movie Jerry Maguire, and Mirren Fader replied, I've never seen it. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode, recorded in person, features Jay Moore, the outstanding comedian and actor who you've surely seen on stage or TV, or certainly as Bob Sugar in Jerry Maguire, unless you're a mirror fader. Today, we're going to talk all about the intricacies of comedy writing and what makes something funny. This is episode number 159. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, being quarantine sucks, and so does your podcast. Jay, how are you? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Mid-guzzle of a, a soft drink. You don't have to hold that thing the whole time, do you? It helps. Well, let's find a stand for yeah. us to start over. I'm old-fashioned. We're going to have to start over. Right? Here, I'm going to hold a mic like your Larry Bud Melman. Well, you know, I'm a journalist. So I'm used to holding a notepad. Nothing on Larry Bud Melman. I like Larry Bud Melman. I could tell. Yeah. Um, thank you. Can you start this over for me? Sure. Jay, thank you for doing this. My man, Jeff, my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to do it. It's like a trade of podcasts because I did yours and my USF book came out, which is very kind. The, the payback was a little long coming. It was kind of like the Len Lease Act. It was. Like but I don't think anyone wants to do this podcast. I'm like, who the hell wants to be on my podcast? People just like to talk. Yeah, that's true. Like about themselves, talk. especially. Yeah, and they like to be identified and acknowledged. And it's like a weird form of validation. That's why I'm in show business. But I don't. I promise you, like, you won't have any trouble getting guests for this. Great. I've only had one other comedy writer ever on this show, comedian on the show. And I'm fascinated, like, beyond fascinated by how to write funny. Like, I don't even, I wouldn't even know. It's like, to me, journalism, writing funny are, you know, apples and Buicks. Like, they're not even in the same stratosphere. It's, uh, I don't think it is, though, because... It's funny because when you're talking about being fascinated by writing comedy, people that write comedy, I was also thinking, well, then I'd like to listen to you talk to even more comedy because I'm not, I mean, I ain't shit, but there's comedy writers out there like have like massive volumes of stuff. Right. Like a Colin Quinn with two Broadway shows and all the specials that he didn't go up the air and the scripts and the this. Like, I would love to hear you interview more comedy writers because I love the way you ask questions. I like your podcast. I think what you were saying about the, being a journalist, I think they're a lot more similar because there's an objective and the modalities to get the objective are completely all over the place. It's your choice. So it's kind of like big funnel, top of the funnel, and then you get down to like the bottom of the funnel, like what's, what's the story? What's the news story? This is a big, broad, fat question, right? Soft on the air. Like, how do you come up with something? Some idea in your career that has worked really well for you, how did you even just come up with it? It's usually just nonsense or da-da humor that means nothing. And honestly, like on Saturday Night Live, I'm going to go back to things that sort of change my molecules because they happened. You know, I'd be goofing off and I would do like, first thing I got on air was just dumb stuff that pops into my head, like Christopher walking for Skittles, like him doing a commercial. So I don't have a... Wait, but how does that, how does Christopher walk in doing a Skittles commercial even enter your brain to... Germany. 
Perlman, I'm insane. Like, I'm an actual insane human. If you put me in a mental hospital tonight, I would not be able to talk my way out of it. I would stay in there forever. Do you really feel that way? I know it. As if I'm, I know I'm cuckoo. Right. I got diagnosed bipolar this year. I'm 49. Like, hey, everybody. Turns out I wasn't really a jerk. I had a problem. Right. But it's like, no, I'm nuts. Like, my head... I say on stage a lot of the time when I'm doing stand-up, I'll, I'll say to the audience, a lot of you guys right now are thinking to yourselves, I, I must have missed a couple sentences or something here. I'm like, no. But then I tell them, you only hear what I've edited. Like up here, it's insane. So it's... I know it's really hard to explain how a brain works. Like it's almost no, impossible. I mean, I've been in therapy for a while. Like last uh, inspection, I'm pretty sure I can cover you here. Okay, so how... How does your brain work that you would get Christopher Walken and Skittles or anything? How does it? There's no, the synapse isn't measurable. When I, even when I do, when I do stand up and when I have an idea for writing, when I start writing and when I start saying it on stage, it's literally the first time I have ever heard it the moment it's come out of my mouth. On stage? When I have something that I think of on stage, I can ad lib. I don't think of it, weigh the options and then roll it out. I don't try stuff out. I go on stage. I just tell stories that like happen to me. This is stand-up specific, but you can't calculate the time. There's no synapse. There's no measurement for that synapse because it's it's an immediate thing. It's really spooky, and I don't really have any structure. I don't have any routine. I don't have any disciplines when it comes to that stuff. So you go on stage. You don't know what you're going to say. I know I have six hours to choose from. You know, I'll, if I have a bullet point of like, you know, I'll say uh, uh, dating. They're all so vague and bizarre. Like dating is like 20 minutes of material. It takes me into dating apps. It takes me into like, you know, dirtier like sexual stuff to kind of loosen people up. And then if I just write like son, like my son, uh-huh. that's 20 minutes because boys are idiots. That'll lead me to couples because couples, I'll, you know, I had a kid. You have a kid. When you're with them. So it's just little bullet points will lead me around. But inside those like word bubbles, it's, I just... I just kind of start going cuckoo like a, like a Geiger counter going off. So you don't have like, you say you, you'll do 20 minutes on your son. Like, do you have stuff prepared about your son and then you... Oh, yeah. Like, it's been said before on stage. I'm not like some savant. You know, I do long stories. Here's the thing. Like, about five years ago, I had a revelation and that was everything I'm going to say on stage in the future has already happened to me or will happen to me. Because the idea of sitting down and writing a joke, it's not a truthful construct. It's a lie. Like, while I was watching Turner and Hooch the other day. No, no, you weren't. So you cannot do that. You would not say you were watching Turner and Hooch the other day if you were not watching. I've done it. I mean, survival, sure. Like, if you're on stage and just that's the way the show's going. Like, I I have stories in my act that are completely constructed and false, and they make people cry. Right. Like, they're touching. Like, talking about my mom's Alzheimer's and taking her to swim with dolphins and the picture of the dolphin, even though she didn't know who I was, she's pointing to the picture on the... You know, asking me if I knew her son, JJ, because she took her to swim with her friend, Dottie, the dog. And the crowd, like, it's choked up. Like, I can't, like... Wait, you're saying that's true or not true? No, it's all constructed. It's that's just, amazing. It's just a bizarre thing. And it's, like, pieces of other older bits. I did a thing about it going swim with dolphins. Then, you know, you think about a second bit. Like, they say dolphins have sex, like, every single day of their lives. And you're like, eh, I remember a bit about dolphins having sex. It's kind of hacky. But I, maybe if I piggyback it somehow here... And then I went to the dolphin encounter with the first wife, but I don't want to even talk about that person. So I just made it my mom. Then my mom had Alzheimer's. I had these jokes about when my mom was sick because trying to loosen people up and let them know everything's all right really is what I'm trying to do on stage anyway. And then that led to a joke about people always say, how was the funeral? 
Hey man, the DJ, the DJ was amazing. <laughs> like it was nuts. Then da da, then do do. We left early because I'm not a coke guy. <laughs> That's whatever he says. How was the funeral? Eh, not as funny as I thought. So then I put the dolphin bit with the funeral bit, and then I tie it all up by saying something to the audience. Like when I say it's happy to see you, I I really mean it, probably more than most people. And it's like this weird dance of sentimentality and and goofiness. So you don't know. You don't know. I don't even know what the question was anymore. I ramble. Well, yeah, but I like this actually. Oh, okay. So like, whatever. It's you know, I'm looking at your schedule here. You're at the Jukebox Comedy Club in Peoria, Illinois. You should. was a couple weeks. Yeah, ago. right, right. But you show up with oh, a list right. of things you are going to like a vague list, and then but you know what's within. You know, sort of the material that's within that list, roughly. Uh, yes, but I have to go backwards a little bit and tell you, I, there's nothing. Nothing's ever been written down. Ever. No, there's no, I mean, I'll scratch something. There's a whole, there's 100 notebooks in here with something, I scribble here, scribble there, but it's never been like, here's my JPEG file of, you know, this hour material, and uh -huh. this one, and this one, and this one, and I don't like go, I could take this, and I could put it, I can't construct a show, because it's phony. It's not, you're not present. Right. You're thinking about what's next, and does it go in the same order, or are you thinking behind you? I don't know. It's like when I made that decision about talking about things that really happened to me, I just became super present on stage, and it's just, it's like a superpower. It's you, you're bending time. You're, you're you're rearranging their memories like furniture. You just you're in complete control metaphysically. It's it, it's crazy. It sounds like hokey pokey to Penga Canyon shit, but it's I know when the next line. I know when they're going to laugh. I know how they're going to react. There's a joke I do about. Something that I, I say, this is what's going to happen. You guys are going to get more uncomfortable than me. A lady's going to be on my left or my right, and she's going to yell out, ew. I'm going to remind her, like, I don't do that anymore. Why? She, then you guys are going to get real quiet because I told you this is going to happen. And that's how it plays out every single time. Like, including where I point in the room that the person's going to yell. It's like being Penn and Teller. It's weird. I just, is that experience? Is that what it is? Well, I, I did it a few times. And a lady, but when I was a kid, me and this other kid used to fool around with each other. I don't know if you curse on your podcast. Yeah, of course. Me and this kid, Eddie Collins, used to blow each other. Okay. When we were 10, like all summer. And he did. It's a long fucking... It really happened. Like, we were, you know... You and your 10-year-old friend used to give each other blowjobs. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Uh, oh, wait, are you being serious or joking? Yeah, getting it. Fantastic. Giving it. And <laughs> like, it tastes... I, I go... It, it, you know, so you guys know I'm not lying. It tasted like pennies. And that's when a lady will go, Ew! I'm like, I quit! Like, it's off menu for me. <laughs> Like, what do you mean, ew? It's, it's, it's in your head at some point. Uh, that's me. really good. Yeah, right, right. I gave it up. But I know how they're going to react. I know when they're going to react. Oh, that's funny. I mean, every comic does, but when... But if you know how they're going to react, does the reaction still give you satisfaction? If oh, yeah. It does, even if you know it's coming. Oh, yeah, because there's different ways that they laugh, and there's different ways, there's different stops on the way to the laugh. That You know, all these Easter eggs are on the way to, you know, when you write a book, it's like, oh, like, like Gone Girls, just like 50,000 Easter eggs all over the place. Right. So, you know, you tell a story, but you, it's like Lombard Street. You just take a circuitous route, and there's a lot of laughs along the way, and the laughs along the way they get a laugh tells me what kind of audience is there, like how many people are there to see me specifically, how many people are there for my podcast, more stories, how many people are there because, like, Ghost Whisperer, Gary O'Mary, or Set It Live, it's... It's pretty fascinating. I was talking to Yaz, my assistant, about it. We were texting. It was Saturday night. 
And I was like, that was just like water eroding sand away from under your feet. Because I could tell there was like 25% were there to see me and everybody else was just going out to a night of entertainment. Right. But the people that were there to see me were just, they were manic. It was amazing. So you, you feel like there are different reactions based on if people are literally, I want, we're excited. Jay Moore's in town. We're going to see Jay Moore versus let's go for a night of a, at a comedy club. Oh, he's here. Okay. Oh, absolutely. That's interesting. Because we already have the same things in common. They like what I like. That's why they like me. And that's why I like them. Huh. They listen to my podcast and they've been listening for like eight years. Like we like the same music. <laughs> we like, they've heard half of these stories in part on podcasts, but the podcast is like, deep, weird references that these guys will call back. Like, I, don't, I can't give you an example. Like, Harvey Keitel is an 80s comedian, which is like, I won't even remember. And someone will be like, oh, they'll just say like a sentence and they kind of out themselves as like, they listen to your podcast all the time. You're always in between their ears. You're always right there telling them everything that's ever happened to you. So they're seeing somebody they know. Right. It's like when Bob Newhart comes on the screen, you're like, okay, good, everything's fine. You know, there's some actors people tease, like, why does he always work? It's like, let me tell you something. You put fucking John Stamos, Tony Danza, you put Ted Dance, you put any of these guys on TV, the world just goes, what's he doing right, right. here? Because we just can't stop looking at him. It's weird. It's actually not because of looks, it's because of comfort, right? I, I, maybe that's their presence. But the, going back full circle to the presence thing, that's, that's like the skeleton key to the whole, for me, writing. Like, if I'm honest and I'm present... It, it, you, come, you become like critic for folks telling you about gasping for airtime. When I wrote that, that's what happened to me. I shared like my alcoholism, my depression, panic attacks. I made myself a villain. And then there's a couple of, it, it was well reviewed, very well reviewed. But then there's like real negative reviews by grown men. And it's like, this is what happened to me. You're actually criticizing what happened to me. No, I'm shocked. This is going to sound probably dumb. Like, um, I always, I'll look at my Amazon reviews and. They don't really bother me that much, truly. Like, there'll always be one, and I'll take and actually tweet it out. Like, this guy, I learned, you know, you, you, you interviewed 700 people for a Walter Payton book, and someone writes, I learned nothing new from this book. And I'll, be, I'll think, you, you, learned, you learned nothing new from this it's book. It's impossible. It's impossible. So, the next door neighbor, uh, Cletus, on the dirt, like, they didn't Yeah, right, 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 exactly. Yeah. Like, so I would think you, you've had this, you've had a great career, right? You've had a great career, and you've done a million different things. I would think some guy giving you two stars on Amazon, who gives a fuck? No. Oh, I'm too sensitive. You know, I'm an addict, man. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I belong to two programs in N&A and neither one of them have to do with food or dice. You know, it's booze yeah. and pills if I got, you know. So it's a constant battle to just check your ego at the door and, and realize who what you just said. Who cares? Craig Proops has a great line. One of my best friends in comedy. If you look your name up online, you are everything that is said about you and you deserve everything that you're hearing and reading. And you are all those things. If you type in your name and then enter, whatever bad thing you read about you is absolutely true. How often do you type your name and enter? I'm not anymore really at all. Yeah. It's nothing. I, I know what I'm doing. There's That's no news. I don't make any news. Every time I have a book out, I do it all the time. Because I want to see what reviews are and what viewers are saying about oh, it. I but mean, that's it's been a long... I mean, my last book was what? I know, but you don't do a show and you don't look it up to see... What is it, like Yelp reviews for people? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know either, but who cares? I really had to learn to stop doing that. Because I would do like BlizzCon shows, World of Warcraft conventions, 6,000 people from like 18 different countries. And you just handled this whole night and you directed traffic and you kept them on time and you delivered the show. And you got a standing ovation and I would go back to my hotel room across the street and I'd go on Twitter to see how I did. Yeah, no good. And it's like, what the fuck? Everybody thinks I'm on drugs. 
the weird thing is, is like, um, I have health anxiety issues, right? And if I think I'm dying of cancer, right? I could find a hundred reasons why I'm not dying of cancer online. But the one, I find the one that says, oh, you're probably dying of cancer. And I freak out about it. It's almost like you look for the one negative, even though you think you're looking for the positive. You're actually looking, seeking out the negative for some weird masochistic reason. We like it. I mean, we love but it. why? I don't know. But it's like being lonely. When the first thing you do when you're lonely is you, you put on lonely songs. Yeah, right. You nobody don't put on, I'm so excited by the Pointer Sisters. Yeah, nobody puts that on. Nobody, <laughs> it's always like, let me see the cult spike smog. And you're like, oh my God. Things are so blue, man. Let me put on more lonely shit. It's so funny. Let me put on Springsteen, Nebraska, and I'll get over to Rufus Wayne. Right? Like, nobody's like, I'm so depressed. Put on, I've got big balls by ACDC. So funny. Why is that? That is interesting. So when it's that negative, we're drawn to that negative, and it's probably just a primal survival thing, because in a smaller community, you have to know who's got a problem with you, and you have to size that person up. Like, maybe we can't help it. So do you, um, when I write, I don't tell my wife this, but it's oh, true. Oh, you're a writer, Jeff? No kidding. I am. Are you a comedian? That's my yeah. character, dumb guy. Uh, oh, right. yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you just go, yes, dumb guy. Oh, yeah, yes, dumb guy. Oh, okay. Um, I, I actually trust myself more than other people. Like, I write something, and I trust myself. Great. Are you the same way? Yes. So you, I, you I, don't need 10 people to tell you your jokes are funny, or this is funny, or that bit is funny. No, I don't. And I'm, I have to write that down, because I trust myself more than I trust other people. Well, you write that down. I trust myself more than I trust other people. That's the thing, is you, it's... I think that ties into like the 10,000 hours. I think that ties into just, you know, I'm a wrestling coach too. It's just attendance and repetition, repetition. Do a little, a lot. Do a little bit, a lot. And you do it so much that it's like, the fuck do I care what these assholes? Like, you know, it's funny. You know, like people ask me a lot, <clears throat> you, where do you try out your stuff? I, I just, I don't. Even in an empty room by yourself, you don't do it? Like say it out loud in front of a mirror, nothing? No, it it's something that happened. I go, oh, I have to talk about it on stage. And like if if you're at a party, Jeff, and like that morning, a lady getting out of her Cadillac, a heavy lady, she lurched forward and her titties hit the horn and it beat and it scared her and you and your wife were dying laughing. And then you go to a party that night and your wife goes, tell that story about what happened in the parking lot. You're not going to go, let me go down the street and try it at the other party. Uh, Because it happened. It's funny. You know it's funny. That's that I trust myself more than I trust the audience. I asked Jeff Cesario once because he worked with me. He worked with Russell Brand. He wanted to... He won an Emmy with Dennis Miller, I think, and he was with Queen Latifah. He, like, George Lopez, enormous comedians. And I said, what's the one thing that ties us all together? Like, we're so different. If we just made paper dolls, what's the one thing that ties us all together? And he said, your compass. And Jeff's a great comedian, too. He said, comedians have a compass that's as true as a compass. And when that fucker hits due north as a show runner, I got to stand in front of the cockpit door and not let anybody bug him. Because he, he's right. If it doesn't get a laugh, he was right. If you lose your job and the network's upset, you were right. They're wrong. Like two nights later, I was doing this set list show where they put a topic on the wall. You don't know what it is. The audience sees it before you do. Like it says, that are the deaf conning us? And you have to pretend that's your bit. And they'll just let you twist out there for like 12 minutes and then they'll put something else on the wall. Like friendship only, glory hole. Do you like that stuff? I, nothing, nothing makes me happier. No orgasm has touched this. Like it's insane. I'm just, you're just free falling. That's amazing. And then it's D period, E period, R period, P period. Like an, an acronym, you got just, that's your big closing bit is derp. And you have to do a bit off of saying you saw it just right now. That's it. And your brain, so the way your brain works, it just goes and just. 
I just keep talking like when they show computers like on the Matrix with all the numbers going up and down crazy. Yeah. I just go, I just talk about anything and I just keep talking and talking and while I'm talking, like I think therefore I am being proven incorrect because I think, but I can also go to the side of my thoughts and catalog what I'm thinking. I don't want to get too deep, but yeah. as I'm talking to the audience about nonsense, I'm going, what the Jesus, did everybody really participate? The ERP. But I can't just say it. I'm just going, but I'm saying out of my mouth, like, Wally Sherrod never walked on the moon. We talked about this last week in class. Are we still on page 30? I pretend like I'm a teacher or something. And they giggle a little, I guess, at that. And I go, Gus Grissom never walked. I just start naming astronauts or something stupid. Or I talk about Lyndon Johnson's civil rights record because he had to do everything that Kennedy had set up. or you know. Uh-huh. And then as I'm talking, the numbers just keep going. And I go, did everybody really participate? Okay, that's the advice that the host gave me when I first started doing comedy and I'm going to just tie it all up and why I'm so glad to be. And then I say what I thought of. It's like the only time I'm really thinking on stage because the, the words kind of come in. I got to file them to get off stage. Man. It, it's, it's, it's like jumping out of an airplane. It's amazing. It's amazing. And you can't fail. Everybody's got it wrong. Comedians go like, oh, well, I can't. Like, I'll fuck it up. I'll fail. It's like, you just talk until you say something remotely funny about the thing. But aren't there times where you do a gig and nobody laughs or no? I mean, I- well, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a great system because the more you do it, the easier it gets, and the less you have to work, and the more you get paid. Is that because of the audience expectations? No, it's because you have the luxury of time and the benefit of the doubt because they have their tickets because they want to see you. They waited a couple months to see you. Nobody goes to a comedy club for somebody to do poorly. Nobody has ever bought a ticket and said, "I hope this guy stinks." I but like I remember um, being a kid. And uh, watching uh, Eddie Murphy Delirious, right? And then two years later or whatever, seeing Eddie Murphy Raw. And I knew Eddie Murphy Raw was not as funny as Eddie Murphy Delirious. Not that that's an indictment because they're both very good. But everyone was laughing their asses off. And I wonder if part of that is because you're seeing Eddie Murphy and you saw Eddie Murphy Delirious. Right. Like Seinfeld comes out and gets a standing ovation. I mean, I'm not at that level of Jerry Seinfeld. He's one of the greatest, 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 greatest of all time. But... There's places you go out on stage. They're just so happy to see you. You'd be like, wow, you guys are nuts. And that, they'll laugh at that. That's not funny. Right. They're saying they're nuts. <laughs> right. If you said like, I love pickles, they would laugh. You know, I lo- that would be a laugh. Yeah. I'll do it. I'll go on stage next show and I just, I'll record, I'll record it and I'll send it to you. That'd be amazing. Be like, All right. You know what? I like, pi- you know what? I really like pickles. But there's something kind of funny about the randomness of saying I like pickles. The whole act is randomness. And what you were asking me before about like, do I go... How do I know where to pick material from? I, the only way I can really describe it is like when you go to Hawaii, you might have four suitcases between you and your wife, five with your kids. Right. You know which one has your bathing suit in it. You don't carry all the bags around the island the whole time. And then when you go swim, you take it out. Right. When it's time for the bathing suit, that's the bag you go to. Will you walk out, see a crowd and determine that you won't be like, oh, it's a bunch I, of senior no citizens. No matter what you're saying next, no. No. There's no, I'm, you just point the cannon and you shoot. It, it's kind of like boxing, like guys used to really study the other guy. Some guys are obsessive about tape. I love watching tape for wrestling and I learned so much from it. And then MMA and UFC became so popular. Those guys are so skilled at so many different styles. They just obsessively prepare their attack. They don't give a shit what the other guy's doing. Like they don't go, oh, he's got this crazy left. So I better do this. Like, no, I, this is what I do. Man. Right. And with stand-up, it's like, I think once you start modifying and getting further from who you are, especially in writing, too, if you start writing from, like, some wacky point of view, 
that's not going to fly. Like I, look, I've done, you know, going in, like I've done a corporate show for say like Raymond James, crazy money, fly to Orlando. It's, the average age is death. <laughs> the room's so cold to keep them alive. Right. And you have to be G. And fine, I could do it, but they don't, they can't hear. Like they don't get to use a remote control in their home. Right. They don't. They can't drive. Right. Like who thought to put me? But I'm gonna keep smiling and nodding because I'm getting that check. Right. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna have a good show. Like even if I'm the only one that thought so, but it goes fine. It's interesting because I've a. Uh my next book coming out is about the Shaq Kobe era Lakers, right? Yeah. I interviewed Jeannie for the book, and it's it's coming out in September. And That's exciting, man. I know, but Kobe Bryant died, and I have this. I'm writing about this era, and obviously, Kobe from '96 to '04, which the book is about, wasn't the Kobe of later on. He was kind of a pain, and he was difficult, blah blah blah, and the, the everything with the rape trial and Kobe. All right, so all this stuff, and it leads to a big conversation with my publisher: Should we change the book? Should we? maybe lighten up on Kobe from that era, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of felt what you were just saying actually hit me where it's like you go with your material and you just, you go with your material and you have it there. And then you have fear or you have doubt. The other exactly. Way. And that will kill us. Exactly. This is what I know about you and you as a writer. Aside from being someone I love to read. I'm, I've said that to you before. Thank I'm you. not kissing your ass. You're an exceptional writer. It's just, you, you get me how I like to read for some reason. I know as bad as Kobe's stories could be in that book, there's no denying he's a once in a fucking millennia basketball player. And that's evident and said over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. I know that without reading the book. Factually. I know you didn't say anything that was a lie. True. So I know he didn't go to jail for this thing. It was dropped. I know you were very. I know you were extensive in making sure that was letter perfect because you knew the, the before, when Kobe was alive, you knew you're, you're talking about somebody's legacy here. Yeah, I know you were careful about it. I know you were thorough about it. But what a fucking team! That yeah, was great. I'm not minimizing what may or may not have happened. I just realized, like, oh, yeah. you know what? But what a team! Yeah, amazing. Also, how about the fact it if you sounded awful? No, if you look at it, who cares what happened? Look at that team. No, but I would say if you look at it just from a basketball standpoint, just from a basketball standpoint, the guy was flying in from Eagle, Colorado, getting in like two hours before the game, <laughs> having spent the day in the court, and that, I mean, it's one of the. It's almost like impossible to say because he was on trial for rape, but it, from a purely athletic standpoint, it was one of the great feats of sort of mind over matter. Yeah, to compartmentalize that you're on yes. trial, that you you may go to trial for rape. That's other level. Yeah. Like that's Black Mama. Yeah. It's insane. You mentioned like uh, having addiction issues, right? And I've, I've had other writers. And I wonder like, are you as good at your job if you don't have those issues? Like is there something about... I wouldn't have my job if I didn't have my issues because I'm a validation addict. I see. That's so interesting. I need validation. You I need give, this. I give, I give with conditions. And when I do stand-up, it's my designated dosage of me perfectly. And then I say goodnight, and I go back to my hotel room. That's all I know about me. It's just like, here's an hour and five minutes. Yes. I can't hang around. I get social anxiety. I panic because all I can do is ruin it. So you would never do like an after-the-show meeting? I used to do them a lot, but you you don't... They seem really bad. They seem super awkward. Are they awkward? Is that awkward? I don't get awkward at all. I really like meeting people. I really like shaking their hand. And they mean a lot to me. But then when I'm still in the meet and greet line, they go, he's bringing me up in a minute. It's like, I don't get to take a leak. I don't get to have a sip of like soft drink or something. Right. But if I didn't have my addiction issues and I didn't have 
what you know, whatever I have, I, I wouldn't be in show business. Look at me, look at me, don't look at me now, but now look at me as this person, now look at me over here. I'm gonna write a book, look at me like look at me this way. Here's a reality show that I sold. Look at his documentary made. Look at me over. It's like you just I'm just jumping all over the globe for attention. And then you just kind of settle in because you you got all these like now I'm not like trying to get a lot of attention. Like I don't really care anymore. But so what how did you change that? What changed? It's just you're doing 33 years. Yeah. You know, at some point you have to be you can't you have to stop being a sore winner. You have to realize you've been reelected. You can cruise a little like Nixon, like like bro, you won, relax. Right. So you're that way. You feel like you've been able to sort of appreciate the career as opposed to always. I have superseded what I thought possible. I, mean, I have a poetry book coming out. It's insane. And like, I couldn't wait to show it to you. And I can't freaking find This is it. very disappointing. You're okay. walking over the house. You got two dogs the size of post-it stamps and you can't find your book. Hey, man. <laughs> I love those dogs. I love my homosexual dogs. Are they gay? Jerry Seinfeld thinks so. But are your dogs gay? Do they have a relationship? No, they think I'm gay because I'm a dog. So <laughs> Michael Richards came to my house and comedians getting car, in cars getting coffee. Oh, yeah. By accident. They're going up Sunset Boulevard. It's when I lived in the house in the Palisades. <clears throat> and Michael Richards goes, Jerry, turn right here. Let's see. Let's go say hi to Sh Sugar Ray Leonard. He goes, you know Sugar Ray Leonard? And he goes, yeah, yeah, just make it right. It was my street. Michael Richards is completely making this up. That's awesome. He goes, hey, uh, this one right here. This one right here, Jerry. This is Sugar, this is Sugar Ray Leonard's house. I can't believe you know Sugar Ray Leonard. They go to the front door. It's my house. <laughs> Randomly. They got a camera crew. My nanny goes, Jay, three very important people are here. She's from Mexico, like like the, the planes. Uh, but you see Jerry Seinfeld. That's a Q rating. Who are the three? Michael Richards, Jerry Seinfeld. My manager, Barry Katz, at the time, he uh, showed up because he had contracts for me to sign because I was doing some pilot. Uh -huh. And they all got there at the same time. And he goes, Jerry, what are you guys doing here? And Jerry goes, Michael knows uh, Sugar Ray Leonard. We're going to say Sugar Ray Leonard, the champ. He goes, yeah, this is Sugar Ray Leonard. He goes, no, this is Jay Moore's house. <laughs> this is Jay Moore's house, not Sugar Ray Leonard's. And they're like, what are you doing? Uh, Michael Richards goes, what are you doing here? And he goes, oh, I'm going to a meeting. And Jerry goes, he's got his meeting pants on. He's gone. So then I look at downstairs and I see a boom mic, a camera, and I, think, I don't see any humans. And I realize... I think I'm getting, I'm on the show pumped. Right. So I run upstairs to jump in the shower so I look okay. And I start doing push-ups because my whole life, my, I've always wanted to be on pump just to knock out Ashton Kutcher. I have uh -huh. nothing against Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. But like if my truck rolls into a lake, it's like, oh, no, this is your truck. Your kid wasn't in the truck when it yeah, rolled right. into the lake. I'd be like, ah, that'd be the best episode ever. Like no one's ever been like, I get it, man. Kid headbutt his face. Yeah, that'd be good. At least from Iowa, it'd be a fight. It'd be good. Yeah. So I thought I was getting punk. I got hyped. And I go downstairs and they were gone. And then like, I don't know, six months go by and everyone's just going like, did you see Jerry Seinfeld at your house? I'm like, yeah. Did that make the episode? Yeah. Oh. And then on the drive home, they're like, those were great dogs. I didn't know Jay Moore was gay. <laughs> I didn't know either. I had no idea. That's awesome. He's calling me Sugar Atlanta. Well, apparently Jay Moore lives there. He's this gay dog. That's awesome. I don't know. That might have been Albert Brooks. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Ink, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who just finished reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. So I have a question. If Malcolm X were alive today, what jersey would he get from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise? You wouldn't get any. Oh, I get it. 
Malcolm X, Mr. Big Shot, thinks he's too good for 503 sports jerseys, even though they're handcrafted, reasonably priced, and feature all sorts of throwback leagues. It's not that. Yeah, I bet he doesn't like the Denver gold. All because they had Vince Evans at quarterback. Why is Malcolm X blaming their passing game on Vince Evans? He was a nice guy. Dad. No, no. Malcolm X is too good for a Steve Young LA Express jersey. Steve Young is in a Pro Football Hall of Fame. Is Malcolm X in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Dad, Dad, calm down. It has nothing to do with any of that. Really? Yeah, relax. Malcolm X has very sensitive skin. So if he went to 503-sports.com and ordered one of their fabulous jerseys, the fabric would have to be denim, or else he'd break out in awful hives. Oh, why didn't you just say so? Wait, I have a question. You said that... Uh, you called... I don't know what the exact words. You said something like, Jerry Seinfeld is at a different level, I think you said. Yeah. Wait, what? Okay. Besides, like, whatever, money and the other shit, blah, blah. Do you feel like he's a better stand-up than you are? No. So what takes him a different level? Wait, do you really feel that way? I know it. You're the best stand-up in the world. I'm the best living stand-up comedian, period. And now Seinfeld would probably say the same thing about himself, would he not? I don't know. So what makes you say that? I love that. I'm the only one that says what I say. I'm the only one doing what I do. Nobody, there's, there's no, I have no peers. I'm the only one running the K-Gun offense up there. You know, like I'm the only one talking about sucking a kid's dick when I was 10. I'm the only one talking about depression. I'm the only one talking about my mom dying. I'm the only one talking about being divorced and just waking up in liminal time and not knowing what to do every day. And the bone crushing loneliness of that or going to a steam room in Koreatown where I just see a bunch of gay guys fooling around and admitting like, it's kind of hot. <laughs> These guys really putting in the effort. So do you have no filter? Is, is, do you no, have, I have no filter. For some reason, I don't say things that are like racist. or I, I don't like that thing that happens immediately when I say something for the first time. It's it's never gone over the that thing's never gone over the line. It's ever on stage ever. It's always things like in social situations like borderline where people misinterpret a tone or a text or something. But on stage, I don't know. It's weird because so I have two kids and I say some fucking racist shit. So is is it? I was actually just about to say like nowadays my kids, you know, suburban white kids, blah blah blah, and a lot of their peers. We use the N-word, white kids, which is... No, that's not, that's not good. No, not good at all. It drives me crazy. And I want to ask you, like, do you have a line for yourself as far as gay jokes, as far as black jokes, or whatever? Like, is it- I don't want anybody to ever... I don't want to pick on anybody. And whenever I say about... Like, I don't pick on the audience ever. Because when I look down at the front row, they're like, move right along. I have a bed over you. Please, not tonight. Like, people are always afraid you're going to pick on them. I don't so you never do it? I hate it. They're not, like... Buddy Hackett told me once, never make fun of a guy who's having a good time. That's great advice. Because somebody had like a, oh, laugh. I go, whose laugh was that? Jesus. And he goes, don't worry, that guy, he's having a good time. You know? That's great advice, actually. It's great advice. But the front row, I don't look at him for the first 10 minutes because I don't want him freaking out. And I just, what was the question? I'm oh, about what the line, what oh, the line is that you would not cross. I say things that are horrible. If you isolated a sentence or three of, if you just drop, you know, the drop the needle test with like an old vinyl record, you take, put on Abbey Road anywhere you drop the needle. It's like, oh my God, it's perfect, right? Yeah. You drop the needle anywhere in my set, you could take that to TMZ and they, they get wrong with it. Like, what's an example? Can you give me an example of something like you might say where yeah, someone would be like, kind of like relax, you know, everybody's too uptight. I kind of lull them into that. I go up the dribble, like AI. And I'm like, are there any Asian people here? And somebody, I forgot. And somebody, yeah, I go, Asian people, you need to relax. Like stop walking around Orange County with long sleeve shirts and green visors. Like you got some secret poker game going. <laughs> when I'm trying to jog past you, 
And don't get mad at me when I guess the wrong Asian. I don't know. I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. I know Asian. I don't know all Asians, you know? <laughs> I'm on a flight from New York to LA. I'm sitting next to this Asian guy. We have a lot in common. Like, he loves comedy. I'm a comic. We're both high school wrestling coaches. Um, he's Asian, and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing he's Asian. <laughs> and I go, are you Korean? And he goes, it's like three hours in. He goes, whoa, 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 hey, Jesus. Do I fucking look Korean? I go, yeah. <laughs> You're the most Korean-looking guy here. What are you talking about? That's why I was like, are you Korean? He goes, well, I'm Japanese. I go, is that better or worse? What's happening? Like, I, I was so confused. And he was like, I'm, I'm this, I'm not that. And to me, he was like, I'm an idiot, but I'm always the idiot in all those situations. But that's not a real situation. Yeah. Well, the, me asking an Asian person if they're Korean and they're Japanese, or if I say, are you Vietnamese right. and they're Sam Philip, it's like, that happens to me, you know, once a year probably. Who right. cares? Right. It's not racist. I don't know. Right. I'm an idiot. I go, you, I know you're not white or black. That's about as smart as I am. With that haircut, you could be an Italian with Down syndrome for all I know. Good. That's the one we're like, if you just want, there you go. We got Asians, Italians. That also brings in the Catholics and we have uh, special people. There you go, Jay Moore, goodbye. Wait, but I have a question. So you, when you, if you tell a joke about Asians, do you look at the audience to see if the Asian people are laughing? No, I can't see past the first two rows. Do you have bad vision or is this the nature no, of a nightclub? I'm blinded by spotlights. Ah, okay. I play very bright places, Jeff. Right. No. <laughs> No, it's like the lights, you can only see, you know, maybe four people deep. Right. But the people that I'm targeting, which I don't like that word, the ones I'm speaking about, they're the ones that are absolutely laughing the hardest. Right. Every time. Right. Like talk about black people, the white people get uptight, the black people like, he's right. Right. You know, I'll do a joke where I go, if you have a friend and you're not sure whether or not your friend's Jewish, they're not. <laughs> the Jew, some people are like, wait, what? Jewish people are like, they get it. Right, right. Says, of course, of like, course. Jewish people tell you they're Jewish all the time, and sometimes it doesn't even make sense. Right. Like, what did you do this weekend? We saw Jay Moore on uh, Friday night, Saturday, kind of laid low. Sunday, we went shopping, uh, then we went out on Mike's boat, and I sat in the front. I'm a Jew. <laughs> like, I don't have a chart for that in my head. You're, you've done that multiple times. Like, you were, oh, yeah, that's part of the whole, like, every race I hit. Got it. You know, but in each situation, I'm the idiot. Right. You have to make yourself the idiot. No, I am the idiot. I know, but you have I to... I, I say, are you Korean? The guy goes, no, like I offended him. I'm oh, an idiot. I'm saying, what, what are you supposed to say? What type of Asian are you? But let's say that happens... Why does it interest me? It's a weirder question. Wait, but let's say that happened on a plane a year and a half ago. Is it okay to say, I was on a plane yesterday and blank? Is that fine? Yeah, it right. just doesn't work for me. Right. There's no, you know, just doesn't work for me. You can well, say whatever you want on stage. Yeah, right. No, I get it. How important is um, like pacing? Like, but um, but um, like... I always hear in writing, when I write something, I have to read it out loud. Like, I'll sit at the computer, I'll write a lead, I'll read it out loud. I was sitting with Jay Moore, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, I was sitting at Jay Moore, and he looked at me, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll read that out loud, and I need to hear it go, like, it has to go, ba dum ba dum space, ba dum or ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum Is it the same with... I like that you do that. I do. But do you do that? Every time I write, I have to do it. Like, if I'm writing a comedy scene, if I'm writing a poetry book, of course, I gotta read poems aloud. You have to count, you know, there's meters sometimes. Right. I'm curious, are you writing to a specific meter, like an OCD type meter? I think so in my head, but I couldn't tell you what it is. But you knew the pauses with that. You're loosey-goosey. You, you, you but I'm very like, see your pants. Oh, like, I just was reading, someone told me to read a Faulkner. Have you ever read Faulkner? Yeah. And the sentences are 400 words. Some of the sentences are 400 words. It's dense. My sentence is probably average. It's, it's rough. Sometimes, like, someone told me, um, like this is the best book you're ever going to read. It's so bad. And it's like four words, and my sentence is average 12, you know, probably 12 words. I like writing, <laughs> sure. like, yeah, I like writing, but um, but um, 
But I'm, but I'm like Moby Dick. I'm like, what this sentence goes? What the hell's happened? And we're required to say it's great, and sometimes it's, it's not great. I'm on yeah. page one eighty. They haven't. They're not on water yet. Yeah. Like I thought, there's a Moby Dick, a big whale. Yes, I, there's pacing, but it's not pacing's too deliberate, and you can't be deliberate if you're sharing. You have to just kind of no, roll around like water going downhill. So it's more time. Again, it's time. Like I get them on my tongue. The softer I speak, the more they lean forward. The longer I have a pause, I have to measure. Oh, I'm going a little longer tonight. I just want to see how long I can stretch this time out right here without saying anything. I'm just keep looking around the room and then I'll say, here's the point. Like I'll say whatever that tag is like. It's more just getting them on my time, my tide and time. The best way I can explain it is just you just manipulate time and the slower you can get it all. For me, that's that's been the best. And that's when like epiphanies happen in writing, like when you're still. That's when people have like religious awakening spiritual you know awakenings when we're still so when i'm on stage i'm really still it's very odd because people always say i'm frenetic and i i'm all over the place on stage physically but if you watch take me doing stand-up i stand pretty much in the exact same spot my left hand's in my pocket and my right hand's holding the mic and i pin my elbows in but people will be like yeah like the way you move around on the stage that people always tell me that. are you thinking about how you're moving i'm not moving i barely you've, you've heard people say that right like I barely move. I swear to God, I'm like, I'm on stage. I'm. I do an hour like this. Just standing still. Pin, yeah. And when I get off stage, there's a giant thing of sweat where my arm touches my ribs, and there's a thing of sweat here where my arm touches deep. Like I'll move a little here and there, but like I tell a Chris Farley story where I climb on top of the stool and stand on it or whatever. But it's really weird. Like people's like the poetry book where people their favorite each person's favorite poem absolutely fascinates me because I can't they apply meaning to shit that has no meaning whatsoever right. they miss my, my favorite lines in that poem or like they don't notice the ones that I think are so precious are you okay with that oh yeah it's great because they say something that they love about it that I never thought of right and they apply something to it and that's that's what I think is really hard with how you write is you don't have that luxury to present like Bill Murray and um Lost in translation, yeah. it's brilliant because he doesn't do anything really. Yeah. If you act, you know that when he's at the bar having that crisis of conscience because what the hell am I doing? I'm in Japan selling whiskey that I don't even drink. I order different whiskey. There's this girl. There was a piece of tape on a stand and everybody else has gone home and they just did that at the end of the day. He's staring at a piece of tape. All of it we put on him. I mean, that's, I guess that's that way of storytelling, which I don't know how to do. Like I have to like really express exactly what's happening like in a linear it's just people will apply meaning to poems like I love that poem because my dad died I'm like your dad died it's about a fucking deer in Rustic Canyon <laughs> literally right the deer cracked the, the but it's kind of cool that someone can find meaning in something like you said that you didn't see yourself in it that's kind of cool it's fascinating yeah. because then I go through my life and I'm like the meaning I put in Springsteen lyrics and the import I put on like a line from over here or a line in a movie that must have meant this and they're showing me like I'm completely wrong right by law of averages you know you um I'm just looking at your schedule here live dates right mm -hmm. and just it's it's on your website and you went from January 23rd to 25th Jukebox Comedy Club in Peoria February 7th and 8th you're in Birmingham Alabama February 9th Pasadena February 15th Hollywood February 21 22 Boise then Dover the Dover Downs Hotel and Casino and I went to University of Delaware so I'm familiar with Dover Delaware Okay. I, it's good to do there for only one day. Then Atlantic City, Fort Lauderdale. 
some like cool cities, some shit cities, like some, yeah. are you, do you get amped up for doing these sort of, you know, when you go on kind of a tour or a I, string of, well, I get amped up when it's a city I haven't played before, like Peoria, I was amped up when I went to rock for some reason, I never played Rochester or Erie, Pennsylvania, Rochester, New York, or Erie, Pennsylvania. I added in the last like two and a half years, I've annexed these cities, Boise. I played for the first time last year. Boise is a great town. actually. It's amazing. Yeah. And they're, they're just great people, man. Right. Uh, like Tacoma, like Spoke. There's places like if I'm going to Spokane, Tacoma, Denver, I'm like, oh shit. Because they're insane. It's crazy. It's great. Are there towns that are bad comedy towns? Louisville, Fort Lauderdale. Why? No, West Palm. Because they're old, they're rich, they're white, and I'm white, and they don't give a shit. So Palm, West Palm, would you avoid or would you just execute? I don't go back there. I didn't, I didn't sell, they don't want me back. I, I mean, they, the second show Friday folded into the first show as one show, and that wasn't sold out either. Is it hard when you walk into a... It's, it's crushing. When it's half full? It's all. I was in Raleigh. It's a weird year also. Like, there's not a lot of ancillary income. There's not a lot of disposable income. People just aren't going to comedy as much across the board. And then there's, like, YouTube people that just sell out, like, they will turn. Yeah. Because they take makeup off with their brother. Right. It's like, what the hell's going on? Right. I was at Cubs Comedy Club, and I remember the marquee in San Francisco. It was, like, from Saturday Night Live, from this, from this, from that, from Jerry Maguire. Picture perfect. Ele- worked with 11 Academy Award winners. And uh, Thursday was packed, and for some reason the weekend was real light. I get my check, my check's really light. I'm like, man, what the fuck? Who's here next weekend? I don't know. I look up at the marquee as I'm walking out with my week check. It says, from YouTube, Angela Johnson. Oh, so sold out. Of course. She's not even there yet. It's just a different world, though. It's just I'm a like, different from world. From YouTube? And Angela Johnson's hilarious. But this is back, this is eight years ago. Yeah. Like, YouTube. <laughs> wasn't that popular but she was one of those people that cracked the code wait so how do you fight through when you get to a you're, you look out and it's half empty some of those shows the majority of really small audience shows are the best first show in Peoria was a Thursday night there was 22 people in a room that sat at 275 Ugh. what's your first sort of reaction to that when you thank see thank you both of you that's good. That's a standard hacky one. Right. And uh, I'll go like, been in uh, you know, 26 movies. You know, someone will go like, ah. I go, been, uh, you know, been in 300 hours of network television, 22 Tonight Show appearances, and I've written two best-selling books and won an Emmy and nominated for a Grammy. And now I'm in front of 22 people in Peoria across from a dirt racetrack next to the Marshals of Strip Clubs. <laughs> That's great. If I want to see, you know, 22-year-olds with bullet wounds and cesarean scars, I'll watch PBS. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it's it, funny. It's good. Was, I loved it. Is that what you said? That is exactly that is what you exactly said? exactly what I said. I'm remembering now. Because there was a strip club next door. That I, I Wait, what's the line again? Say the line again. I go, I, basically, like, all these things that make me what you think is successful, I've parlayed right. all of that into... Uh, 22 people in Peoria. Getting 22 people in a ski lodge in Peoria across from a dirt racetrack and next to the Marshalls of Titty Bars. That's a great line. It was. The First of all, I love Marshalls. Yeah. I love Marshalls too. Yeah. I, I've never seen like a third leg on a pajama. Like, like eyes out of the cost. Like maybe a stitch is missing from my scale. <laughs> it's all right. Eyes out cost. Marshalls, the good Ross's dress for less. Yeah. Does the initial disappointment of a 22 person room evaporate as you get rolling or no? Immediately. It does. Because they know I know. And they know I'm not, they know I'm, gonna sh- I'm not going to shortchange them. Because when it's a crowd's that small, Jeff, you can't do a show. You look like a psychopath. How's everybody doing out there? 
You know, my wife, she's been crazy lately. I Like, you can't do an act in front of 16 people. You look like a psychopath. You look yeah. like you're reading Prompter or something, right? Yeah. It's like a, a kid doing a play in high school. So you just got to, it's, it's like, talk about slowing time now. You're talking to 22 people. It's a whole different thing. It's a, I mean, it's awful for your paycheck, but as far as becoming a better stand-up comedy, that's fortune steel. It's steel, man. That's great. Wait, so you don't know how much money you'll be getting at, like, Dover, Delaware? It's based on how big... I know the- what I'm getting. I know what the guarantee... Like, it'll be, you know, a guarantee versus 75% of the door after oh, I see. some fucking math I don't understand. Oh. I'm like, you know what? It's a good living. If they screw me on the check, who cares? Do you ever have people say stuff like that and you wish you said it? Has that happened? We hear oh, a yeah. That's the ghost. Absolutely. And that's the ultimate compliment a comedian can ever say is, I, I, I can't believe I didn't write that. I love that so much. I can't, like, if I had written that, I'd yeah. be so happy. But then you go to the other end of the looking glass, and I want to know if this happens to you, where there's parts of my show, like, there are sentences or two in my act where I go, oh, I can't believe I wrote that. It's so great. Yeah, if I mean, this was anybody else, I'd be so jealous. I do a, date, a thing about Dateline. It's always a white lady. She always gets killed by her husband. She's always named Patty. It's always Patty. It's yeah. by her husband. And if she dies, everybody always like goes on TV and they're like, they say the same two lies about the dead Patty. They go like, she's one of these people that lit up a room. I'm like, no, she was. I saw her wedding video in the opening credits. Patty's a six tops. I'm being nice. On her wedding day, Patty with the crooked tooth and the crunchy bangs. Patty? Patty's a six. I'm glad she's dead. I'm enjoying the show because Keith Morrison's hosting. If Patty was so bright, how come she cannot run a ball peen hammer in her own drive? <laughs> that sentence makes me fucking happy. That's really good. Just the ball peen hammer. I get it. I, it makes me so happy. Wait, I want to ask you a question. If I'm writing about this, all right, we're, I'm writing about this, right? And you're spitting into a, a, a bottle, but it's a plastic bottle. It's a plastic bottle of Coke. It has a label on it. It's a red and white label. It's peeled over here. And there's, you know, you can see the spit running down the inside of the bottle. To me, the more hyper-specific you can be when describing something in an article or book, the better it is. Is it the same way when you're doing stand-up? Is it, do you try to get hyper, 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 hyper-specific? I don't really try. I just know that there's details that are funny to me. And like I, what? First of all, this, it was a, I think it was a bad example. I know exactly what you mean. But as soon as you say bottle of Coca-Cola, the label, the cat, like, we all know what it looks like. But if you were peeling it off, let's say you were peeling it off, I would describe you sitting here and I would say, as he sits, he absentmindedly peels the, bot- the red l- label off the bottle and squishes the bottle and it makes it. First record. of all, I haven't. Second of yeah. all, I don't disagree. Yeah. I would say, uh, my mind works differently. I would go, uh, he's just like chewing tobacco. He's spitting on a Coca-Cola bottle. Can't that's even, a good scene. He can't even hold it without it being crushed. That's funny. Like just the fact that it's crushed. Yeah. I would pick out like that's, it's mission, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I do that all the time. Like there's there, the, the joy is in the details. Like, uh, uh, what's an example where I have like details along the way? Screw it. I don't know. But yes, and but there's other comics where I watch their sets, especially guys that open for me on the road that I don't know. And along the way, there's a, something specific that just makes me nuts. Happy. Oh, happy here. Yeah. I mean, oh, in Peoria, Illinois, the guy Chris that opened for me. He doesn't want mayonnaise on, at Subway. Apparently, it's, I don't really go to Subway, but apparently, like, they, they're compulsive. They, like, it's almost impossible to get something without mayonnaise. And he wanted a little bit of mayonnaise, and they just, they put all over, they put all over, and then he goes, I want no mayonnaise. None. And the kid behind the counter turns around and looks into a surveillance camera for about 44 seconds. And then he doesn't talk. It's almost 44 seconds. And I have this, this ocean, this world of, like, 
wow, that's a dumb guy that turns and looks into a security camera for an answer about a situation. Yeah. I don't know. It just made me crazy. Yeah, it's really good. But that's that punchline is like minutes later. All right. Well, yeah, the details are what make it. You know, like, tasted like pennies. There's no reason to say that. All right. It's disgusting. It's funny, though. When I watch Bob Hope, I don't see funny at all. I just it's don't. Funny. It's not. No. But why was it funny in 1960? It wasn't. It was funny in 19-fucking-22. So why were people laughing? Were they just being nice? Because it was a brand new medium. The guy was standing there just saying stuff. Like, nobody ever... The guy would fly to a, like an army base in, in like uh, right. wherever in the in Vietnam somewhere. Or yeah, you go to Vietnam, go to an army base, and go. Well, I tell you, those Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. It's like famous guy talking about titties, man. And that was it. That's like the the what you get. What we were saying earlier about like the gig gets easier as you go. They're so freaked out to see you. Oh, I see. That's interesting. Like Seinfeld, you can go on stage and go, wow, wow. Did you ever watch when you were growing up? Because we're about the same age when um. When we were young enough, Bob Hope would do like the all-American football players. And it would be like, Barry Sanders, they say he's so fast, the wind runs after him. And yeah. Barry Sanders, would have, you'd watch his face and the pain laugh because it's not actually funny, but he knows he has to at least smile. And then the next guy would come up, Brian Bosworth, he's so big, mountains, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh. When he sits around the house, he sits all the way around the house. That's <laughs> too funny. It's so bad. It's the worst. Like all, I, I say it all the time. I go, do you know, he's going to be a comedian in the 60s. Totally. You're either culture or counterculture. The funny thing is, sports writing was the exact same. It was a humdinger of an afternoon at Ebbets Field. Sports writing was exceptional too because of it all, because yeah. of the humdinger. Well, story. the good ones were really good, like Jim Murray or Red Smith, guys like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those guys were so completely talented. Like it overflowed the, the space. Like the space allotted, it was bigger than that. You carried it with you all day. Like Jim Murray goes, "No man is an island," but Wilt gave it a shot. That's yeah, good. Like wow. You know the best quote? I just said this to my dad the other day was when John McKay was the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Oh, yeah. Do you know the quote? How do you feel about your team's execution? I'm in favor of it. I'm all for it. It's amazing. It's one of the best quotes of all time. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I'm all for it. I'm in favor of it. Yeah. How do you feel about your team's execution? I'm in favor of it. <laughs> it's so good. I did a story once for a TV Guide about a TV, a short-lived show TV off. show. I don't like to brag, but was I was getting a buck fifty word. It was about um, a show called Love Monkey. With Tom Cavanaugh, Tate Lorenz or Trey Lorenz, and Jason Priestley. Wow. And I interviewed Jason Priestley. I sat down with him. Oh, I was so excited to go to the set. I went to the set of Love Monkey. You're adorable. I was so psyched, right? You're a sweetie. And I'm there. It's my first TV set. And I'm like, this is, oh my God, this is How amazing. Old are you? Huh? How old are you? Like 26, maybe. And I was like, psyched. And um, I'm there. And I watched him film a scene. And I watched him film it from a slightly different angle. Then I watched him film it from another angle. Then I watched him film it from the same angle. I think 25 takes. And then I interviewed Jason Priestley afterwards. And I said, I'm going to be honest with you. This seems a little more boring. And he goes, brother, you have no idea. And I always remember that. It seems like a guy like you who thrives off of the energy and the action and blah, 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 doing 30 takes of a scene in Jerry Maguire or Pluto Nash or whatever, like, would sort of make your head. I just thought <laughs> that it <laughs> I just thought that, like, that kind of thing could make one's head explode a little bit. Or no. Not after your takes. No. Not if you want them. Even if you're doing it 30 times, you're totally good. If you're doing it 30 times, something ain't right. Right. You better, you got to find it. You got a job to do. You know, there's directors that are famous for just doing it like so much. It's, it's like what the, like Jim Brooks, as good as it gets. It's like, at one point, Nichols is like, I'm out of here. I got to go. That's funny. Yeah. Do you enjoy acting? I love acting. You do? I love playing make-believe. It, it's not hard for me. 
the, the time being still someplace is obviously hard for me, but I don't mind getting like grinding <coughs> and finding something if, if we're doing 30, like 30 takes. If I could keep finding something, if I don't know why we keep doing 30 takes, I'll go crazy. Do you get Bob Sugar references still regularly? People yell, show me the money to me all the time, but I never said it in the movie. I know. How do you feel about that? It's great. You have no problem with that. You're not like, oh, come on, man, that was 20 years ago. No. That's, they're saying, hey, I, I saw you and I see you now and it makes me happy. That's cool. That's what they're saying. Yeah. I'm going to wrap up. Jay, thank you for doing this. I love your podcast and keep doing it and have more comedy writers on, like people that have written more than I have. I should have you, we, I should have given you my books to read before you came on or before I came on. You fucked up. No, you never asked for one. I fucked up. You f- look, man. I'm sorry. We always seeking. I want to thank today's guest, Jay Moore, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Jay on Twitter at jmore37. Visit his website, jmore.com, and listen to his excellent podcast, More Stories, at all the different outlets. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.